Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. If you're new to the pod, welcome. If you've listened before, welcome back. We hope this episode inspires you to cook or possibly do some good today as these chefs inspire us. And we're grateful to our partners who help make this podcast a reality. With that... This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Ford's Gin. Ooh, am I excited about this one. All right, everybody, here's the deal. If you're like me, you enjoy a good gin and tonic or a Negroni, or maybe you're a martini person. Regardless, if we're still on the same page here, seeing multiple gin bottles at a bar or a restaurant or even a liquor store may be a little daunting. Here's where Ford's Gin comes into play. It was crafted by bartenders for bartenders and at-home bartenders alike to make a really, really good gin cocktail. Simon Ford noticed bartenders had various go-to gins for different classic gin cocktails and thought, why not make a gin that bartenders could use that would work perfectly in all of these drinks while keeping it at an accessible price? Thank you, Simon Ford. We're going to give you additional bits of their story throughout the season from who Simon Ford worked with to bring this gin to life, the mix of nine botanicals they use, some food pairings, which I'm really excited about personally, and some other fun facts such as, oh, I don't know, maybe that the bottle is ergonomically designed with multiple grip points to help with the repetitive movements of bartenders. So smart. But here's what I love about Ford's gin. A lot of the ways they give back are through the bartending community. At the beginning of the pandemic, with restaurants and bars closed around the country, Ford's Gin knew they had to find a way to continue to support bartenders. And one of the ways they did this was by activating hundreds of bartenders coast to coast. They supported them through cocktail creation. If you go to Instagram and search the hashtag lost shift bartender, you'll find a bunch of recipes to make at home. Cheers to Ford's Gin for continuing to spread awareness and support the people that help build the brand. To learn more about Ford's Gin, go to FordsGin.com and follow them on social media at Ford's Gin. And let me add, please drink responsibly. Ford's London Dry Gin, 45% ABV, Brown Foreman, Louisville, Kentucky. Ford's Gin is a registered trademark. Ford's Gin, we thank you. This episode is also made possible with the help of our friends at Cherio Tomatoes. Cherio has been growing the highest quality tomatoes and vegetables in Italy since 1856. Let me speak from personal experience here, everybody. Before I even communicated with this company, I had tried their whole peeled and canned plum tomatoes. I clearly remember cooking something in a pot on my stove, dumping this can of tomatoes out and saying out loud, wow, these tomatoes are beautiful. Anyhow, Cheerio selects the plumpest, ripest, and juiciest tomatoes with a specific color intensity and texture. They're picked and packed in the same day. This means you're getting the ultimate depth of flavor and best taste. Here's what I find amazing about Cheerio. They employ advanced agronomists to monitor crops on a daily basis during harvesting. What's an agronomist? Good question. An agronomist is an expert in the science of soil management and crop production. Needless to say, you're getting a really great quality tomato. To learn more about Cheerio Tomatoes and all of their products, go to Cheerio1856.us. That's Cheerio, C-I-R-I-O, 1856.us. Cheerio, we thank you. Hey everyone, one more thing before we get going. We have some awesome Beyond the Plate merch, which you can find a link to in your podcast player or at beyondtheplatemerch.com. Head on over and check out our hats, tees, and hoodies. Again, that's beyondtheplatemerch.com. All right, enjoy this week's episode. 
All righty, everybody. Can you name 10 classic Spago dishes for me while I test your audio? The funny thing is we have so many dishes which are known from the beginning. I have dishes like I talked to a customer yesterday and he said, remember the chicken and mustard sauce you made at my maison. Now, Spago is open 40 years. You know, the people still remember the dishes. And obviously, Spago is known, you know, for... At the beginning for our different pizzas, the smoked salmon pizza, the pizza with truffles and with duck sausage. And then we made my mother's cheese ravioli. And we were probably the first one to put tuna on a menu of not a Japanese restaurant. You know, 40 years ago, there was no restaurant in America who had tuna, raw tuna on the menu. I love it. You're good. You're good. That that did the audio job right there. So I'm going to do a quick... Uh, well, it's not quick because you've had an, an extraordinary career. But bear with me, chef, while I bring our listeners up to speed, all right? Okay. All right. Today's guest is an Austrian chef, restaurateur, TV personality, author, actor, and father. Everyone knows his name. His name is on the door of Wolfgang Puck Fine Dining Group, Wolfgang Puck Catering, and Wolfgang Puck Worldwide, Inc., His name is synonymous with the best of restaurant hospitality and the ultimate in all aspects of the culinary arts. Of course, his name is Wolfgang Puck. He opened the world-famous Spago in 1982 and made gourmet pizzas famous by topping them with things like smoked salmon and caviar. He went on to open Chinois in Maine, laying the groundwork for fusion cooking in America. He's received every single major accolade that you can think of, yet says he's not faced by awards. He has well over 50 different restaurant concepts and locations all over the world. He has multiple cookbooks, has appeared on nearly every TV show, has a line of branded kitchen products, and Lord knows what's next. Please enjoy this episode as we go beyond the plate with Chef Wolfgang Puck. Chef, what's the story behind your name? Do you know how your parents came to name you Wolfgang? Well, (laughs) in German, uh, you know, I was born in Austria. So in Austria, Puck, we call it Puck, not Puck. And it's uh, not a common name, but there are a few uh, siblings around uh, where I lived. Like one had a famous guest house, which is like a little restaurant bar, whatever, where locals go. And uh, they had a big name on it, book. And everybody thought it was me. And I said, no, no, it's a relative of my stepfather, really. Oh, wow. So so there's nothing uh, exciting about the book name. Uh, Wolfgang, my mother was into music and she loved Mozart. So I think she named me a little bit in the hope that I might play the violin or the piano or something like that. So now I just play on another piano. You know, we call the stove a piano in French for sure. Yeah. So I think the good thing is she saw me growing up and becoming who I am now. You know, she passed away like 15, 16 years ago, but she came to Spago and to Chinois and to all the restaurants. So that was really for her the greatest achievement. She thought, you know, I can die now. I know you did well. I love it. So let's go back to where it all began in Carinthia, Austria. Wolfgang, as a kid, how would you describe yourself as a kid? Were you always into food? You know, as a kid, I was miserable. My stepfather was the worst. He was like a terrorist. You know, he beat us up and so forth. So it was really no joy to be home when he was home. Thank God he was gone for 20 days every month. He worked as a coal miner. And, you know, he was as rough as anybody could be. So at 14, uh, 
I finished school. My mother, who was a chef also in Maria Wirth in Carinthia, in a hotel called Hotel Linde, a beautiful little hotel on the lake. And so the owner of the hotel found me a job in Villach at the post hotel. And uh, I started my apprenticeship there when I was 14 years old and uh, stayed for, wasn't good. The beginning wasn't that good either. And the chef fired me after three weeks on the job because we ran out of potatoes. And then uh, I hid down in the vegetable cellar for a while and he found me and said, you're fired, go home to your mother. And uh, she went on and on and on. And then uh, finally, um, the owner came down in the, in the cellar and said, you know what, maybe we sent him to our other little hotel there and we'll see. And over there they had the lady chef and she was nicer to me because she had kids like about my age. I stayed there three years, did my apprenticeship, finished it. And then I found out about French cooking. We had a French restaurant from Dijon doing a week, a gastronomic week there. And I went uh, to Dijon. They gave me a job as a stagiaire. I started there. A year later, I found out uh, we had a party at the restaurant. The owner gave a party for the staff. And there was this red book there. was the Guide Michelin. And the way they talked in the restaurant, they always said, we are the best restaurant in France. We are this and that. So, And then I looked at the Guide Michelin and I said, oh, we just won one star in the Guide Michelin, but there are two and three star restaurants. So I wrote to everybody, to Trois-Gros, to Berger, to uh, uh, Bocuse, to La Tour d'Argent, to La Sierra, all these famous restaurants in France. And the first one who accepted me was Raymond Tuillier at Beaumanier. So I was 19 years old then, and that really changed my life. Here I found my mentor, really, and I said, I want to be like this guy. The restaurant was amazing. The customers were amazing. I remember being cooking next to him, making sauces, and that was really what French cooking was really famous for, all these amazing sauces. And uh, he bought, uh, he used to go in the dining room and come back in the kitchen. And I remember bringing in uh, uh, Picasso. I remember him bringing in uh, Liz Taylor, uh, Sophia Loren. I remember, and uh, Pompidou, who was then the French president. So all these people came in the kitchen. But what really impressed me, his attention to details. We had six gardeners bringing us the best melonog, the smallest green beans or bees or the just perfect carrots, which I had in Austria too. But my mother always or my grandmother let them grow bigger because she was nervous uh, ripping the carrots out when they were like that long. You know, she wanted to leave them another month so they get really big. So uh, I think and the taste of everything he did was just so amazing. And I really thought I want to be like him. And he was the first one who believed in me. And uh, somehow he made me feel like, okay, I can do that. Wow. So that time really helped shape the chef you are today, huh? A hundred percent. And I give, if I would, and even I tell today young people, if you can find a mentor, somebody you can look up to, Somebody you want to emulate, maybe not exactly, but do it your own style. That's really an important part. And I think that what did Beaumanier to me. He gave me the confidence. I remember when Mr. Tullier went on vacation and he told the chef, we had the chef in the kitchen, you know, and he told the chef, while I'm gone, I want Wolfgang to do the sauces. Meanwhile, I was like this 20-year-old, 19, 20-year-old Austrian 
And we had, you know, all together probably 15 French guys in the kitchen. He didn't tell any of the French guys, you do the sauces. He said, no, I want Wolfgang to do it because somehow I developed this rapport with him and it was really amazing to me. Wow. And so I just want to be clear, what the, the first hotel you worked at in Austria, you were, how, you were 14? 14, yeah. I left school when I was 14, worked in a, in a post hotel, and it was terrible. The chef was as bad as my stepfather. You know, at that time, they used to hit you, kick your butt, whatever was possible. I mean, today, a chef like that would be in prison. But at that time, it was totally normal. You know, and I remember the chef hit a girl, an apprentice girl, in the face. She was bleeding from her nose. I mean, if you do that today, thank God, the law changed. You know, it was totally crazy. And uh, I remember when he, uh, when I was in a vegetable cellar, and uh, the, when he fired me, before going in the vegetable cellar, I, I really thought, you know, I'm not going back home. So what I, I did... I was standing on a bridge over the river. I said, I'm going to kill myself before I go back home. So I was standing on a bridge like for half an hour, 45 minutes, looking down into the river and thinking, I'm going to jump, I'm going to jump, and uh, uh, I don't want to go back home. And then all of a sudden I said, you know, I'm just going to go back tomorrow and see what happened. Naturally, I couldn't sleep all night long. At 7 o'clock I went to the post hotel in Villach, and then the apprentice ahead of me was so happy uh, he uh, put me down in the vegetable cell and says, peel the onions, the potatoes, the carrots, whatever, the spinach, whatever had to be done. And uh, I bring you the food down. He brought me soup down or a little sandwich down and everything. And then after three weeks, the chef found me down there. And then uh, finally, the owner had a little more empathy and he sent me to the other hotel. And then it started to go up slowly. But when I tell all these people, my first 17 years were the hardest of my life. My youth was certainly not something what my children are having today. I want to give them the opposite. And I think uh, they're happy. My two young ones are in uh, school in Switzerland. And my son, Byron, went to hotel school to Cornell and then worked there with the Roca brothers in Spain and with Guy Savoy in Paris, with Eric Ripper in New York and uh, Grand Archats in uh, Chicago and so forth. Now he's working with me, running our newest restaurant. He's 26 years old. So I believe in the youth. I believe in young people. And, you know, for me, when I came to L.A. at 25, I became the chef at the restaurant called Ma Maison, and we became like the most famous restaurant in L.A. in the late 70s, early 80s. And I was 25 when I started. So I think I love young people because they come up with new ideas all the time. So when I want to talk about restaurants, about what should we do, I always ask Byron. I said, Byron, what do you think about that? Would your friends come and eat that? Would your friends like that? Instead of asking People who are my age and says, you know, I'm going to put that on the menu. They're already going to tell me, you know what, whatever you do is great. I mean, people, I did dishes 40 years ago, they still are good today. But I found the right way of tradition and innovation. And that's an important part. Even with the look of the restaurant, like Spargo has like three incarnations, the first on Sunset, then on Cannon Drive in Beverly Hills, and then we remodeled about like uh, nine years ago, the whole thing, made it new again. 
Now we added a pavilion outside because of the pandemic, which seats 120 people. We closed down all of Canon Drive, like closing down the street and put a restaurant there. So it's really an interesting thing. And Spago is after 40 years is doing as well as we ever did. And you tell me how many restaurants, which were famous in the late 70s, 80s, are around in New York, in LA or anywhere. They're all gone. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, wow. I could go uh, 17 different directions right now, chef. Let's see. You mentioned you came here at 25 and you mentioned LA, but I'd be remiss not to mention that you went to Indianapolis first, didn't you? Absolutely. You know, I used to work in Monte Carlo and I used to love Formula One racing. It's like a big thing, probably like NASCAR in the South here. You know, if you go to Richmond, Virginia or somewhere like that, NASCAR is this thing. And for me, Formula One is really big. And we had all these famous drivers like Nicky Lauda and Johan Rindt in the old time and some other ones. And so when I was in New York, Charles Mason, who owned La Grenouille, who I met in New York, I went to see him, and I was actually supposed to be the chef at La Goulue, which they just reopened on 61st or 62nd Street on the east side. So, and I didn't like to cook like a bistro food. I worked in all these three-star restaurants like Beaumanier and L'Hotel de Paris Monaco and Maxime's in Paris and so forth. So I didn't like it. So I went to see Charles Mazon. He said, if you would have come two months earlier, you would be the sous chef at La Grenouille. And, but I just hired somebody and he seems to be very good. And then he called up his friend, PRC, who worked then in, in Chicago and says, do you not need anybody? And he says, yes, I need a chef in our French restaurant in Indianapolis. I got so excited when I heard Indianapolis because of the 500 miles I had maybe a hundred dollars left or whatever. I booked my ticket with the Greyhound bus to go from New York City to uh, Indianapolis, ended up there and said, oh shit, that's Indianapolis. It's nothing like Monaco, you know, but I had no money to leave. I stayed there and the people in the Middle West were very nice. I got my green card after one year because nobody immigrates to Indiana. And after that, I had two good things. The company I worked for lost the contract in that restaurant they managed, but they had the restaurant in L.A., so they sent me to L.A., and then I met Patrick Deray, where his uncle owned La Tour d'Argent. I knew of La Tour d'Argent Natural. It was a three-star restaurant in Paris, very famous. And uh, so I started to work with him, and uh, the restaurant didn't do any business. My first paycheck bounced, and then little by little, we built it up, and, you know, I had people from Awesome Wells to Chuck Lemon and Linda Evans and Dinah Shaw and all this People who 40 years ago were like on the top of their game. They used to come and eat the food until 1981 when I decided to open my own restaurant because I couldn't come to an agreement with Patrick Deray about how to manage the restaurant. I wanted to be a 50% partner. I said, we do it 50-50. And he told me I was going to own 51%. And I said, me too. And then I had to leave. And wow. the rest is history, you know. So he went... Um, open uh, Mamezone in another building and it went down and now he lives down in Georgia and, you know, uh, a different lifestyle. It's not LA and, you know, he was really Mr. Hollywood. So he's uh, definitely a different guy today. Do you think it's important for a chef to keep moving? I think you have to figure out the right way of tradition and innovation, you know, 
a lot of people, if I change my menu totally, you know, I can do it like in an hour and write a new menu. That's not that difficult to do. And then you figure out to make it taste delicious. But then people are going to come by and say, oh, my God, I come by. Like at Chinois, our sizzling catfish or lobster, uh, it's so famous. If I take that off, I think people wouldn't come back. I know. I saw the other day Sandra Lee, you know, she was on the Food Network and I was like, and uh, she called on the way from the airport. She called Chinois and she said, you know, I will be there in 20 minutes, get my uh, Shanghai lobster ready and a martini. That's going to be my dinner. And sure enough, she arrived. She sat down. Five minutes later, she got her lobster, the martini. Half an hour later, she left. She said, I'm happy. I can go back to my house now here in L.A. and have a good evening, watch a movie or something. So I think if I take that off, what would she do? She probably would try another restaurant before. So we need really to have that. But we need to have a tradition. But we also need innovation. For example, our newest restaurant is called Meroa up at the Pendry Hotel, which is uh, the group who owns Montage Hotels. And over there is really the next version of Chinois. And because a lot of people like are interested in uh, things from the garden, from the fields and more plant-based food, like we put a whole garden sushi section on it. Like you get sushi with roasted eggplant, with tempura vegetables, with uh, slow roasted carrots. And, you know, I know with the mushrooms, all different kinds of mushrooms, and it really tastes good. And we have similar dishes, like we do a whole black pass, fried crispy, and we leave the scales on the fish when we fry it, so that way the scales are like popcorns around. And we serve it with a, a ponzo-type sauce, and people love it. I had it last night with Goldie Hahn and Kurt Russell, and they said, how do you get the fish crispy like that? I never saw it. I never ate it like that. And that's really, you know, it started at Chinois with our sizzling catfish, which is so popular and still is popular. So we got it to the next level. And I actually like the flavor of the black pass better. It has a much cleaner flavor because it comes from the ocean, not from a farm somewhere. So, and we do an Asian style duck, a Chinese baking style duck there too. And we make a, a now a chutney with rhubarb, which are in season, a sauce with cherries, you know. Uh, duck with cherries is popular in France. When I grew up, uh, we called it Canal Montmorency. Montmorency is a suburb of Paris, where they had a lot of cherry trees, and uh, the cherries used to come from there. So it's a little French influence, but I cook the duck, and I think it's the best way, just like a baking duck, you know, where you dry the duck. First you uh, put it in a um, uh, in a compressor, then you put it in boiling water for 10 seconds, and then you hang it for a day so it, the skin can dry out and the fat starts to melt inside. So that way you get a perfectly crispy duck. And to have this sweet, sour, spicy chutney with it, and then we make our pancakes, almost like Austrian pancakes, but we add a little ginger and a little pepper to it. And then you can eat the duck, pull the duck in. You know, the Chinese pancakes are always a little dry. This one are so tender and delicious. So to me, it's like a mixture. And, you know, when you said it early on, when you introduced me, that really 
set, she set the foundation of fusion cooking in America. Now it's 38 years ago already. I can't believe it's so long. So now it's just the next step. How can I reinvent things? How can I do things different? I don't want to do another Chinois. I said I have to do the next step. Just as I do with Spargo, when I went from the old Spargo to the new Spargo, we did Austrian dishes on the menu. I never did anything like that. So it's a constant thing of moving forward, but never forgetting the past. Like our most famous dessert at Spargo is the Kaiserschmarrn and the Apfelstrudel. Della, our pastry chef, is so good at it. I always tell her, my mother would be so proud if she would come now and taste your dessert. And uh, I think it's really true. And people love it. Always say, they said, oh, my God, the Kaiserschmarrn is amazing. We had it as kids at home for dinner. Only the Kaiserschmarrn, which is like in between a pancake and the souffle, the way we make it. And we serve it with a warm strawberry compote. So it's really delicious. It's light, fluffy. In Austria, my mother made it heavier because that was our main course. So for us kids, even we didn't have a lot of money. We had meat once a week. We didn't have indoor plumbing at home. Uh, if I wanted to go to the toilet, it was 100 meters outside. In the winter, we had five feet of snow, and my father had to shovel out the way to get to the toilet. I mean, uh, sometimes when I tell that to my kids, they look at me and, and say, Dad, did you grow up in the Middle Ages or what? They can't believe that. They think everybody has an iPhone and everybody has a computer. Nothing like that existed before. We didn't have telephone in my house. We didn't have running water in the house, you know, no TV when I grow up. So when I talk to, to Alexander and Oliver, my two younger kids, they just look at me and say, Dad, that's impossible. That's so funny. So... What did it mean to open those doors of Spago in 1982, just nine years after arriving to the U.S.? You know, I always, when I, I worked at Mamezon, and believe me, it became more successful than I ever thought any restaurant. I remember Awesome Worlds coming every day to the restaurant, me sitting with him and explaining what our special is today and him enjoying it. And at the beginning, I used to give him a little taste on a plate, like he used to come an hour early to lunch so he can talk to me. And uh, so I gave him a little plate. Then I basically gave him the whole plate. And then he had lunch with his lunch guests. So to me, it became really a special place. And at that time, the late 70s, early 80s, Mameson was the place to go. You had a Friday lunch there. It was like, uh, you know, Hollywood lunch. And so to leave was actually difficult. You know, that's why I offered Patrick a thing. I said, you know, I found this place up on Sunset Boulevard. And I told him, we're going to make a restaurant just like I was when I was at Beaumania. Beaumania was a three-star restaurant. And then we had La Cabrador, where I was a chef there for a year when I was 20, 21 years old. And we had one star in the Guinness Michelin. So I told Patrick, that's what I want to do. I want to make a little Italian trattoria, osteria on Sunset Boulevard. And we're going to upgrade Mamezon because Mamezon at that time had AstroTurf on the floor. We had plastic chairs. I mean, it was... The opposite of a luxury restaurant like the Four Seasons in New York or Lutez or any of these restaurants. So, but thank God, I said today, Patrick said, no, I want 51%. So for 1%, he lost out, you know, he could not continue his restaurant because he couldn't get the right chef. And a few chefs came and went and the restaurant started to go down and he had to close it down and move out of town. So I think in a way I consider myself really lucky that he said no, that he was so arrogant at that time that he thought he was more important 
than the cooking. So, and to me, if you go to a restaurant, yes, hospitality is certainly very, very important, but it's easier to teach somebody to smile and be nice. And if you hire the right person, it really will come normal. But to really do great food, somebody has to know the technique, somebody has to have taste, somebody has to get the right ingredients. So it's a much more complex uh, stuff to do. You Speaking of which, you love walking through the dining room, talking to people, seeing yeah. smiling faces. Where, where did you get your sense of hospitality? Well, you know, I always felt I'm so lucky. People come to my house. I consider my restaurant my home. I said they come to my home, I feed them everything, and then they pay for it. If they come to my house where I live, I pay for everything. So I said, well, I have to make the people feel really welcome. I have to make them feel good. And that's really at the end. I always tell our managers, our chefs, it's, yes, we make great food or great service, but it's how do we make people feel? There are a lot of good restaurants where they have great food. But at the end, you say, okay, I got it. I don't have to go back. But if, you, if they make you feel really good and they have a good time, they have great food, it's a whole package of restaurants. There is so much competition out there. That's why so many restaurants fail. You know, you have so many choices. And I think for me, it's really important. And I try to train every chef that way too. I said, you know, we are not only the cooking business. Our overall thing is we are in the hospitality business and you have to be part of the hospitality. So gone are the things where the kitchen and the dining room are two separate entities where they fight and they share, the cooks are a chalice of the waiters because they get more money or and things like that. So we have to be one team. It's like a football team. You can have the best quarterback, the best offense, but if the defense can't stop anybody, you're not going to win a football game. So I think the restaurant is the same. If you have great food, but not great stuff in the dining room, people won't come back. So I think to create a unity in a restaurant where the dining room and the kitchen work together to achieve one goal, which is make the customer feel great. Have you had a bad day in the kitchen? I had more bad days when I was a kid, you know, when I was really young than these days. But, you know, there's always bad days. Yesterday I had a bad day about some contract. You know, it's the cooking is for me, like some people go to see their shrink. I go in the kitchen or to the fish market or to the farmer's market. Same. How do you overcome a bad day or, or an obstacle? in your career? Well, you know, at the beginning, if I had, for me, a bad day was like at Spago, when we started out, we did 350 dinners. If one table wasn't happy, I couldn't sleep all night. And then uh, finally I had to realize, I said, you know, you cannot make everybody a hundred percent happy all the time, you know, and uh, it might be, it's not the table they like. It might be this they didn't like. They might not like something at the time they had to eat, or maybe their steak wasn't cooked enough to their taste. You know, who, who knows what? So, but it used to work in my head when there was something wrong, I couldn't sleep at night. And now finally I said, you know, it still bothers me. But I think I can get over it a little bit easier. And, you know, when I walk through the dining room, I talk to all the customers, and it's so easy. Even if you make a mistake, all you have to do is sincerely apologize. If you said, I'm so sorry, let me make it up to you. I will send you some dessert. We're going to recook the fish, or we're going to redo this or that. 
you know, what they're going to do then? They don't going to go home and be pissed off. They said, okay, we solved the problem. And that's really the most important thing, I think, in a restaurant. Just all you have to do is own up to your mistakes, you know. Then if you all you have to do, I'm so sorry, you know, it was a mistake. I know. And I remember I had the major D at Spago, the first Spago up in the 80s. And he, uh, he uh, you know, we had the, the, everybody wanted to have certain tables. And when he couldn't get them, the people uh, get so upset and he went to the customer and says, you know what, please tell, don't tell Wolfgang, he's going to fire me if I didn't give you this table. He wanted you to have the table, but I made a mistake. And the customer said, don't worry, Bernard, we're okay. Just next time, give us the table we like. That's so funny. Okay, so while running one of the hottest restaurants in LA, the country, quite frankly, Spago, at some point you make a decision to sell grocery store items, frozen foods with your name on it. Tell me more about that. Well, it started really funny. So one of our big customers at Spargo in the 80s was Johnny Carlson. You know, he had the Tonight Show, what now Jimmy Kimmel is now the host of that, but Johnny Carlson was probably the most famous Tonight Show host ever, you know. And so he used to come every Friday night after the show and uh, have dinner there. And one time he said, Wolfgang, I love your pizza so much. Can you make me like 10 pizzas to take home? I said, well, okay, why not? I thought he's going to have that night at party at home or something. So then the second time he came, a week or two weeks later, he again ordered a bunch of pizzas. And I said, Johnny, won't you have another party tonight? He says, no, I put the pizzas in the freezer. And I said, you put my pizzas in the freezer? Forget it. I'm never going to give you a pizza again. <laughs> I said, okay, I'm going to try it out. So I cooked some pizzas, took them home, put them in the freezer. A few days later, I took them out. And I cooked them 100%. So they were really, you know, I like my pizza really cooked well done. That the crust is dark, dark brown, and so it has more flavor. But then I had to put it back in the oven. Then it got really too dark to, to, to make it perfect. So then uh, I said, okay, I'm going to try it one more time. And I'm going to cook it only halfway through. And I cooked it halfway through. And then I did the same thing for Johnny. And he said, you know, the pizza is so much better now at, in my house because you didn't cook it so much. So, And then I did it for Bernie Gelson. Gelson is a supermarket chain here in California. And they have about 20 stores. And I gave to Bernie to taste it. And I said, we will sell it in our store. Can you make it for our store? So I started to make it. Then I found a plant where we could make it and send it to this uh, small grocery chain. And then uh, later on, we started to make canned soup. And uh, well, I licensed it after a while because I couldn't grow it anymore to Campbell's soup. But I really would like to take it back again now. And then uh, in the mid-90s, I was good friends with Ron Popiel, who was always on QVC and selling uh, the pocket fisherman and the fryer and kitchen stuff and pasta maker, which became famous, you know, people making homemade pasta. I said, what the heck is he doing that I'm the chef and so forth? So I talked uh, with the same guy who ran his company, who was also a friend of mine. And I said, you know, I should do that. So we started to do uh, work with uh, QVC. It didn't work out. And well, there, I didn't know how to sell. I didn't know how to do it. So, but I learned 
Then I moved on to HSN. That must have been now probably 25 years ago. And I'm still doing things at HSN. So after 25 years from a thing where I said, okay, I'm going to try it, it became a business. So it's, I think, really an important part to try things. Do they work all the time? No. I opened Monse Brewery with a restaurant because that's what we have in Austria. Every town, every bigger town had its own brewery and a restaurant where they serve uh, fried chicken, uh, goulash, and maybe Wiener schnitzel or maybe a pork roast and things like that. I did that, but with interesting food and food from a little bit Southwestern food, which became famous around like in the late 80s, and also some Asian-inspired food, food to go well with beer. I brought in a sausage maker from Germany, but I didn't think through the beer-making thing. We didn't pasteurize the beer, so we had to shut it down because... The beer didn't hold up, but the beer at the restaurant was amazing. I still remember we made uh, uh, Sean Connery's, may, may he rest in peace, Sean Connery's 60th birthday party there. And he thought the best sausage, the best beer. He loved it and he became a regular. Mm, so interesting. But the business did not work out. Yeah. I have to go back. You mentioned like the canned soups and things. If you were to take something like that back, what what's the new incarnation, if you will, of your grocery store food? You know what I think what would be the best way how to do it? There's a company out there like Blue Apron or like Gold Belly or some of them that we fabricated the food, maybe freeze it, and then they take it home, take it out of the freezer and bake it. And we develop like our famous chicken pot pie with truffles or our macaroni and cheese. And when people get it at home, it still comes out really good. So it's not like freezing a cooked steak. But if you even you have good short ribs, you know, you braise them right, flush freeze them so they get frozen right away, and then you turn them off, put them back in the oven and baste them a little bit, and it comes out juicy just like before. So I think I would like uh, to do a company where it goes direct from my kitchen to people's home. And I think that way I can control the steps all the way. In the supermarket, it's very difficult. You put your pizza in the freezer, somebody decides where the pizza is. Maybe they put it all on the bottom of the shelf. Nobody sees it and you can sell it. So I think I want to create now a platform where I can sell great food directly to the customers. And you don't have all the middlemen who mark up the prices. You know, you don't have the factory, you don't have the distributor, you don't have to pay slotting at the supermarket. So normally when you do that steps, everybody adds to it. So it gets expensive. So if I can do it directly, ship it directly to the customer would be my priority now. And I'm trying to do that. Yeah. Smart, smart, smart. All right. We touched upon uh, the hotel in France that you worked in. You mentioned the chef and bringing the different celebrity clientele through the kitchen. And it's no surprise that you have a huge celebrity clientele through Spago and, and a ton of your places. Transitioning here, you catered the governor's ball for over 20 years. You were the official chef for the Post Academy Awards Celebrity Banquet. So is there any... I'm sure you've talked, well, obviously you've talked about this uh, probably a million times, but I, I'm curious a moment uh, behind the scenes, something something you'll never forget. Is there one thing that pops into your head, some interaction, something that happened? 
Well, I think there is a lot of interaction, obviously, with celebrities. I remember when Julia Roberts, like 20 years ago, 22 years ago, she was like the biggest star at that time, you know, when she did uh, the movie with uh, Richard Gere and uh, uh, things like that. So when she came after the award, uh, she came in the kitchen and said, bravo, guys, I love the food. And then she was with all the chefs around taking pictures. And, you know, people who worked 20 years with me, and now maybe not anymore, but when I see them somewhere, they say, oh, I still remember when Julia Roberts came in the kitchen. Or, for example, the first one or the second party we did downtown at the Shrine Auditorium, and we had to build a kitchen in the parking lot, and it was raining and windy and everything because the Oscars are general in February. And I was making black truffle risotto. And I had like 10 stoves, each one with a big casserole out there making risotto. But because the wind was so strong, instead of the gas flame going up and heating the pot, it went like that. So I go out, I said, where's the risotto? Not one was boiling. And I said, shit, what are we going to do? And all of a sudden I got this idea. Let's put some aluminum foil around so that way the wind cannot blow on the fire. And it worked perfectly but nobody in the dining room knew it and we served the risotto but for a while I was so nervous I said shit we cannot cook the rice or then we got our new place up on sunset the Dolby theater which used to be the Kodak theater then and uh, I said now I designed the kitchen everything was perfect we just went from the kitchen in the dining room guess what also, it was a pretty cold night, so they had heaters outside to go from the theater in, and it took too much electricity with all my kitchen equipment, obviously, and all of a sudden, in the middle of service, we served about 800 out of 1,500 people, the electricity went down, the gas went down. I had still, uh, I think, probably five 600 salmon to cook. I made this duo salmon and the steak and the steak to cook. And all of a sudden, I was there. I said, shit, how are we going to now finish that? We had an engineer in the building, but the, the security was so tight. The they didn't let the engineer come up to the top floor where we did the restaurant. And finally, I sent my partner, Carl, down and said, go find the engineer. This is crazy. Meanwhile, I set up all these little propane fires to cook my steak and my fish. And 15 minutes later, the electricity went on, the gas went on. In the dining room, they had the security light. Nobody even noticed. But for me in the kitchen, I think if you ask me what was my longest 15 minutes, that was by far the scariest one. I said, we're going to have six, 700 or 800 people not getting any food. So I was really nervous. But it ended up well. Everybody loved it. Chefs are incredible magicians um, like that. You have... Gosh, chef! I, I don't even I can't keep up with the amount of restaurants and concepts you have uh, today. Obviously, you can't be everywhere. What do you look for when when you hire your team? Also, what's the advice you give to your chefs or your team to keep them loyal? I feel like you've had this staff that a lot of them have been with you for a long time. Yeah, no, totally. You know, I have. I prefer really to have the staff who I know than I don't know. So I have like Tom Kaplan is with me since the beginning. Uh, Bella, who runs Chinois, who is my partner at Chinois, she's with me for 38 years. 
I cannot even change the restaurant because she is the restaurant. People go down there and see Bella and they feel happy. You know, Bella is from Russia originally, came here as a bookkeeper. Now she's my partner in the restaurant and runs the restaurant and does all these parties for all these people. She just told me last night, she said, you know, I just finished a party for guests, you know, the closing store, uh, for the closing factories for 150 people. I said, wow, this is amazing. You can do parties again and stuff like that. So, but I think everywhere we go, I have people really uh, who are with me a long time. But I also like new blood. Like in London, for example, at Cut in London, we had a chef, David, there. He was with us at Cut, at Spargo, like for 20 years. And somehow he wanted to do more or whatever. I said, David, you have to show me you can do more. But he couldn't do more. And, uh, you know, he said, I opened another restaurant or whatever. I said, you know what? You have to show me more than you get. Well, what happened? He left. Then I hired a young English chef, Jamie. And you know what? The food now is better than it ever was at Cut in London. I'm so excited about it, actually. I'm excited so we can go back in a few weeks, uh, not even 10 days. We're going to reopen the whole restaurant. People made reservation already way in advance. So I think it's, again, a little bit like tradition, just like in a restaurant, have people who have our culture and then also get some new blood in with new ideas, especially younger people. They always have ideas. And when I look at our, our business models all over the United States, not just in restaurants, you know, Facebook wasn't created by a 60-year-old guy or Apple or anything like that. These were all the young people. And I think the young people don't have the tradition. They don't can look at something back and say, okay, this is the way I do it. They just do it the way they think it's good at that time. So I try to balance it out. But it's nice to have so many people I can trust, so many people I work with for so many years. Like Alex came to run a restaurant in uh, Palo Alto, Spago Palo Alto, when we couldn't renew the lease. Now Alex runs all our international restaurants in London, in Istanbul, in Bahrain, Singapore, you name it. Uh, the same thing with David, David Robbins, who is from San Francisco originally, and he worked at Post Trio like in 1990 or so. And then uh, I said, you should be the chef at Spago in Las Vegas. He wasn't the chef there. He was the sous chef in San Francisco. And he said, you know, I love San Francisco. I gave you maximum two years. Then I want to go back to San Francisco. Maybe we open something there. You know what? That was in 1992. He is still in Las Vegas. And now he runs our six operations in Las Vegas. And he's doing an amazing job. And, you know, he learned on the job how to be a better manager, looks out for the people, and also keeps the culture. You know, he knows to promote the people the right way. So I think for me, it's always a way to promote from the inside too. So that way people know they have an opportunity with us. You know, everybody wants to make their life better. Everybody wants to make a little bit more money, maybe take on a little more responsibility and so forth. And if people have the opportunity to do so, I'm very excited to give it to them. And, you know, we have so many great stories, like Brian, our chef in Bahrain. We have two great restaurants, one at Chinois, I want to cut steakhouse there. And 
he came back to Philadelphia two weeks ago and he makes an amazing uh, Philly cheesesteak, an amazing role, a different role than they make in Philadelphia. But the king of Bahrain, the crown prince of Bahrain, they always said, can you send uh, uh, Brian to our house and make us the Philly cheesesteak? So last week, I think it was uh, two weeks ago, they had this competition about Philly cheesesteak in Philadelphia. And his Philly cheesesteak from Via Parain won for best cheesesteak. So, and it's really great to see that not only the do, do I ever show them how to make a Philly cheesesteak? No, but he made it because he's from Philadelphia. That's he, what he grew up with. I love that. And the same thing is with my chef in, uh, at Cut in London, uh, Cut in New York, you know. Ben, he's really talented. He worked for us in Las Vegas, in LA and everywhere. Now he's the chef there. And he said, you know, he tells me, I said, you know, you mind if I put a risotto or pasta or some other things on the menu? I said, whatever you like, as long as it's delicious. Then he got, even it's a steakhouse cut, it's a steakhouse. He got involved with this fisherman in Montauk and they're bringing him fresh fish from Montauk, whatever they fish, instead of saying, okay, I only want Ludemere, farm-raised Ludemere, only salmon or whatever. So we get the fish local, we get the local fishermen working and we pay them the price they need to be able to stay in business. So it's really nice to see like a guy like Ben who really looks out what he has around him, how he can keep the community involved. And I always do that. Even in Bahrain, like when, when I was there like uh, two months ago, Brian made me a fish, a black bass. It looks like a black bass, but it's from the water there. He said, you know, I can serve this fish until April, but then the water gets too warm and the fish doesn't taste the same. So, But in the wintertime, he uses local ingredients. We have a local farmer there, a sheik who has this farm. Most of it is indoor. It's almost like the opposite. You know, we create hot houses here. There they create cool houses because it gets too hot if it's outside. Wow. What three words would you use to describe Wolfgang Puck in 1982? You know, to me, two words are important. Three, if you want to. Passion, enthusiasm, and endurance. What about what three words would you use to describe Wolfgang Puck today? The same. Still passion, still enthusiastic about doing new things. But also the endurance. A lot of young people are very enthusiastic, very excited about new projects. And months later, they give it up. They said, well, it didn't work out that well. You know, sometimes it takes time to make it work out. You know, Chuck Nicholson wasn't always Chuck Nicholson. You know, he made some pretty bad movies at the beginning and then became a superstar. And a lot of other people like that too in any business, you know. So you have to learn the trade, get better, and constant improving is an important part for me too. Constantly trying out, how can we do it better? Like we do Wiener Schnitzel at Spargo. It's one of our staples. People love the tradition. It's my childhood favorite. So now, Michel Bernardot, who makes China in France, I said, Michel, I want you to make me a Wiener Schnitzel plate. So that way, instead of serving just a regular Spargo plate, I develop a square rectangular plate with a place for the schnitzel, for the meat, and then some small wells for the salad and for the lingonberry uh, marmalade. So, and the lemon, we can put it next to it. So that way, the salad, the juices from a tomato salad, don't gonna run into the breading of the Wiener schnitzel and you get it perfectly crispy all the way until you finish it. So why didn't I do it 20 years ago? 
who knows? Who knows? So now I tell already my friends in Vienna, wait until I show you my Wiener Schnitzel plate. I love it. Do you go out to eat a lot? I know I know it's been a crazy year, but I, I'm curious, are there chefs or restaurants that really excite you these days or that you're excited to go check out once things start returning a little bit um, back you to normal? You know, obviously we didn't travel much the last year and a half. I barely had enough time to travel to our own restaurants. You know, I was in December in England, uh, in London, and we, they shut us down. Then we just reopened in Maui. So I went to Maui, Spago in Maui. So I spent 10 days there. My kids are in school in Switzerland. So uh, I went to Switzerland. Then I went to Bahrain and look at our restaurant. And they had the Formula One race there because I love auto racing, as we know. And so I spent some time there. And I went at the same time to Saudi Arabia, to Riyadh and uh, uh, Jeddah to try to do some more business in that region. So that way, Brian, really, who runs the restaurants in Bahrain really well, I said, if everything goes well, you're going to oversee the whole region there. So that way, for him, it's really a great thing uh, to grow. And all of a sudden, he's just going to be the chef in one restaurant, but he can be the teacher for the other chefs in the other restaurants. So now here, you know, I'm such a creature of habit, too, and I understand totally people who want to go to Chinois, or to Spago or to any of these restaurants because they like certain dishes. For me, I go to, to uh, Angelini, to the Australia Angelino. Chino is such a good friend of mine, but the food is great. Or I still go to Matsuhisa. Nobu and me are friends since the late 80s. So if I think of Japanese food, I can call up there and I said, I'm coming over in 20 minutes. And they say, okay, no problem. We'll be ready for you. So it's always good. And I know I'm going to get great food and great service and have friendly people. All the Japanese chefs, they know me. So it's a, it's a good feeling. That's fantastic. You you mentioned your children, Oliver and Alexandra, are in school in Switzerland. Are you different as a chef versus a father? Well, I really believe that one's personality cannot change that much, you know? Even in a restaurant, I try to show, instead of, uh, uh, instead of yelling at somebody because they do something wrong, I try to show them how to do it the right way. And I think to be positive is an important part, you know? And the kids will make mistakes, will do dumb things and this and that, you know, they always do. But I try to be positive and tell them, hopefully you learn from it. Hopefully you don't do the same mistakes again. And I tell them, I know you're going to do other mistakes, so don't worry, I did them too. But, you know, I think I try to be a good father to them. And if I look at my stepfather, I just have to do the opposite and I would be pretty good, I think. So, and at the end, I said, you know, if I die and I have a tombstone, I much rather would have on my tombstone. He was a great father and husband instead of having him make great pizzas and pastas. Yeah, I love it. And you mentioned Byron's running the restaurants at the Pendry Hotel in L.A. Are you tough on Byron? You know, I'm very tough. I told him not to complain, just do the job. But now they loaded so much work on him. We have a food and beverage director there who is not pulling his weight. So everything falls on Byron. I said, you know what? That's the best way for you to learn. You know what? You do everything. Yes, things will fall through the cracks once in a while. But just be positive. Just show people you come with a big smile and you look happy and you look good. And then it's contagious to the people who you work with. And then everybody will come up with a smile. Everybody will feel good. 
and they're going to feel you are in control. If you walk in all upset and uh, shaking your head and say, this is terrible or this is terrible, what the other people are going to think? This is terrible. So I think you have to be positive and keep a smile. Yeah. Chef, you know, nearing the end here of this episode, I'm in awe of all of the work you've done to give back to your community and all of the guests we have here on Beyond the Plate give back in different ways. It's, it's truth be told, it's why we do the podcast. Chefs are way more than the food you see on a plate in a restaurant. You know this. I know this. A lot of people know this. A lot of people don't know this. I know you've been active with a number of projects and organizations. You started your own foundation in the 80s. Let's talk about how you give back and why you decided to start a foundation so early. Okay. Well, in the early 80s, you know, um, when I'm in L.A., I saw homeless people downtown. It's much worse now. And then through one of our good customers who was a benefactor for Meals on Wheels, and uh, I did the game show, and uh, I heard about Meals on Wheels where they deliver food to homebound people, sick people, and so forth. So I did a game show, I remember, with Rita Moreno and some other people. We didn't win a lot of money. And Rita Moreno said, okay, the money we won, you give it to charity. She said, okay, let's give it to Meals on Wheels. And I said, what is Meals on Wheels? I didn't even know exactly what it was. So I got informed about it. So the next thing we did, we did a, an American food and wine festival in the backyard of Spago. And I invited chefs like Jeremiah Tower and uh, Paul Puydom and Jonathan Waxman and a few other ones. And we started doing uh, American-style food and American wine. So we had like 50, 60 wineries and all these chefs. And that grew and grew and grew. Then we ended up having 25 chefs and as many wineries and tequila and you name it. And I think it was really uh, amazing. And then people saw it like the first time I, uh, when we started out, we didn't make much money. So I knew Gail Green, who was on the board of Mills on Mills in New York. I said, Gail, I don't know how to make money, what to do. So I told her what we do. And uh, she said, that's so amazing, having all these chefs together cook and people pay for it. And then you give it to charity and have the purveyor donate the food, the winemakers donate the wine. And so she came out saw it and said, Wolfgang, you have to get sponsors. You cannot fly out Paul Prudhomme with 10 people from uh, New Orleans and then uh, rent eight hotel rooms and uh, try to make money that way. You have to find a sponsor hotel, a sponsor airline and everything. So she told me how to do it. And then we did the same because she loved it so much. We did the same event in New York with Larry Fortune and Jonathan Baxman. Jonathan moved to New York by then and started the Meals on Wheels uh, event down at the Rockefeller Center, you know, and it's still going on. And we did a similar thing in uh, Cleveland for the University Hospital. Again, I got all these chefs together and uh, we uh, made the food and wine and raised over two million every two years for the hospital there, which was amazing in Cleveland in one night. For them, it was crazy. So we also do a cancer benefit in LA. So we did so many different things, you know, uh, all the time. We do a big benefit in Las Vegas for Alzheimer's. So to me, it's always giving back to the community. I was really lucky and I am lucky because I'm still uh, quite healthy. I, even I had back surgery, but I think I'm getting better. 
But I'm very lucky. I'm healthy. I have good food, good wine to drink. I have a great family. So I think there are always people around us who don't have that, you know, who need help. And I think it's our obligation, our duty to help the less fortunate ones. And I think whatever we can do, we try to do. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for using your voice for all those causes. What advice would you give to chefs who get these nonstop incoming requests from charitable organizations or events or donate 500 portions of food here or a gift certificate there? How, how would you advise or guide them on how to give back to their community? Well, I think it's really difficult. You know, if you cannot get, like if you need 500 portions of of steak or of salmon or whatever it is. And if you cannot work with your purveyor, for a lot of small restaurants, it's impossible. You know, if they are barely breaking even or making little money, and then I said, I'm going to give away 500 portion, you know, $5,000 or whatever it is, might be a lot of money. So I really believe people should do what they can, but you have to stay in business. If I give to everybody who wants something, I will cook two, three times a week at somebody's home doing dinner, donate the food, donate the wine, donate the labor, well, I will end on, on the street and then I couldn't, I can't do that anymore. So there has to be a budget. And I tell all the young chefs, set up a budget, what you think is right. So if you can donate 5%, donate 5%. If you think 10% is great, do that. If, if you can donate your time, do a cooking class for a school, for an old folks home, for whatever it is, I think it's a great thing. So there are many different ways. And, you know, a lot of chefs donate their time already. So that's one of the things they can do. And I know I did a lot of online cooking classes and I tell them, you know, you have to give some money to the charity. Mm, I think that's incredible. And I've said this before in past seasons, but I'll say it again because you hit upon this, whether you're using your voice, whether you're using money, whether you're using your time, those are three very different ways you can help a charitable organization, a cause. And it's like you said, it's finding the right way that works for you in your business. Let's do a quick speed round here before we uh, wrap up with one more question. What did you have for dinner last night? Oh, last night, we had a fun night. We had dinner with Goldie Hahn and Kurt Russell. <laughs> Amazing. Chef, it's not every day that I talk with someone for the podcast that, you know, that's what they say. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, the, and the night before I had dinner with uh, Robbie Williams, you know, the English rock star. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And he told me his whole story about drugs he did and how he didn't even know where he was. But last night was really fun. We were at Miroir, our new restaurant at the Bandry, had great food. I had a whole black bus and we had the Toro uh, Tartar on crispy rice, and we had the garden sushi and uh, the octopus, the spicy octopus. So, and our famous thing, our uh, Pasque cheesecake, which was amazing. And we make a lemon dessert, which looks like a lemon. So, we had a great time, but we also had fun. Some really good wine, and we had some Parolo red wine, and uh, uh, Parolo is red wine, so I shouldn't say that as a Restaurant owner, we had some Parolo and we had some good uh, uh, white burgundy. So we had great wine because Kurt Russell also makes wine and uh, it's called Gogi. He makes Pinot Noir and Chardonnay up in Santa Barbara. So I said, I have to bring out some good bottles. But mostly, I know them for so many years since the late 70s or early 80s. And mostly, 
they are such nice people. And we had a lot of fun with my wife, Galila, and them. And then I had one guy from uh, uh, Camilo. He works with Mackenzie. He came with us. And uh, uh, I think it was a wonderful evening. And we laughed a lot. We had a great time. But we had great food and great service. So I told my son, if every table ends up like us, you will be successful. We've got our eye on you, Byron. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. I love the smell of ginger. You know, I, somehow I'm drawn to that. But I will tell you, I have such a sweet tooth. When I smell caramel, when I smell chocolate, whatever it is, I'm drawn there right away. And the hardest thing for me is, so I do, I exercise in the morning. Then I go, let's say, to Spago. We bake our own bread. I'm so hungry and I smell fresh baked bread. And I say, okay, I'm going to have to taste a little bit, break off an end of one roll or whatever it is. And then I say, oh, it's so good. Let me try it with a little butter and a little sea salt on top. I do that. And then Adela makes her own raspberry marmalade. So I do that. And I said, shit, my diet is gone already before I start working. <laughs> That's funny. Name a smell in the kitchen that you hate. Fish. Good fish shouldn't smell. What pisses you off in the kitchen? I got really annoyed with people when they don't go to the fish market, to the farmer's market to choose the great ingredients they could find. Not to say you cannot order and get good ingredients, but I always tell them, if you go buy a pair of shoes and you want nice shoes, you don't going to call up Amazon and say, send me a pair of shoes. You're going to go to a shoe store and try them on and feel them and touch them and everything. And the same thing with me is with food. That's why I still love to go to the farmer's market, to the fish market. Mm, interesting. What makes you happy in the kitchen? What makes me happy in the kitchen is really if our customers are happy. And uh, I think uh, at home, I say happy wife is a happy life. And the restaurant is happy customers makes me happy. And if I'm so positive, the chef is happy, everybody feels good. Yeah. And what actor would play Wolfgang Puck in a movie? I think uh, it depends at what age. But I must tell you, you know, we're going to have my biography coming out with uh, Disney Plus in the middle of June. And actually, they're going to show it at the Tribeca Film Festival. Amazing. All right. We're closing out here. Thank you, first of all. Thank you. This is our sixth season of Beyond the Plate. Every season, we've premiered with some incredible guests. I'm a little biased. We've had Thomas Keller. We've had Jacques Pepin. We've had Rachel Ray. We've had Giada De Laurentiis. We've sat with people like Alice Waters and Massimo Batora. And every chef impresses me on their journey and how they give back. And I feel like while we just covered a lot of ground with you, it's probably like a fraction of what you've done. <laughs> Is there anything you still want to accomplish that you haven't? Or have you done it all? So, no. So it was so funny. A friend of mine... L.A. Reed, he's in a music business, a big music guy, and very good friend. He loves good wine, and I teach him about food and wine still. And uh, So I read his book, and he could not go up uh, the ladder in the record industry as an uh, executive if he didn't get a, a degree. So he went to Harvard, got a degree there, um, but in a short time, I don't know what he got exactly. A year later, the Wall Street Journal did a big article on me with a big picture. And we talked about our restaurants, internationals, and the food in the supermarket, all the businesses we do, catering and so forth. And 
at the end, the journalist asked me, so what is your dream? What do you want still to achieve? And it came to my mind. I said, I want to go to Harvard. And the guy wrote it in the paper. I should have kept the paper because it was funny. So five, five days later or so, the dean of the Harvard Business School calls me up and says, Wolfgang, when you want to come to Harvard? I started to stutter. I said, but you know, I never went to college. I cannot go to Harvard like that. And my sister-in-law, actually, my, my, my daughter-in-law went to Harvard Business School. So she graduated from there. And uh, she works for McKinsey now. And so I said, you know, I never went to college. How can I go to school there? And then I said, he said, no, that's okay. You don't have to go to college to come here. And then I said, well, I never went to high school. How can I go to Harvard? I never went to high school. He said, it's okay. You can come. You run a good business. And I was saying, you know, our whole business is like a $500 million business, including catering, uh, licensing, and fine dining restaurants. So, and finally, I said, okay. So they sent me the whole thing. He said, okay, I have the right courses, classes for you. It's called OPM, Owner President's Management. So you go like three times for a month over a two-year period because they know executives can leave for three months or something like that. So I checked into the dormitory there, and they didn't even have a TV in there, just a small bed and a shower. And uh, I called up my son, Cameron, who lives with Kate, his wife, in Boston. And I said, can you come over and show me how a computer works? I don't know how to use the computer. I had the tablet with me, but I didn't even know how to use it, but I still don't. So... They came over, showed me. The next morning, I got up at 6 in the morning uh, before classes, and I tried to turn it on and push the button on the computer, and nothing came out. I said, shit, i just going to go and go to the classes and tell the uh, professor. I said, sorry, I don't like to use a computer. I like to take notes by hand because that way I remember everything better. And sure enough, he said, it's no problem. You can do whatever you want, you know, uh, hopefully you learn. And I said, okay. So I started classes there and it was amazing. I learned so much about management, about better communicating, about being more direct with people. So that was really an amazing experience. And then we had a graduation at the end. And I remember my kids came with my wife, my sister, who was a school principal from Austria, came and here was the old man graduating uh, in a graduating class. Now, you cannot say I graduated from Harvard but or got a degree from Harvard. You can say you graduated at the OPM classes. So to me, it's a continuing learning experience to keep yourself interested in different things. Would I have ever thought I'm going to go to Harvard and take uh, go to the business school and learn about case studies and things like that? And the most amazing thing was they did a case study on my life. So now they teach it everywhere around the world where they teach Harvard-style classes. Well, Chef, I feel like I've had a permanent grin on my face for the last hour. This has <laughs> it's been an incredible time listening to your knowledge and wisdom and experience and memories and stories and everything. And you're this incredible chef who like, there's no like straddling a line. Like on one hand here, you're, you keep the classics and the techniques and traditionalism, if you will. But then on the other side, you embrace innovation and in young people's minds and, and train of thought. And there's so much in between both of those things. And you feel like you just have such a, a, a comfortable grip on all of it. And just to hear you talk 
your, your like joy about food and cooking in the kitchen, it's awesome. I mean, it's incredible. So I thank you for taking the time. I know you have a lot going on in your life, but thank you for taking the time to talk. And, and I'm sure all of our listeners are going to be enthralled and uh, equally as grateful as I am. So thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. And you know, my main partner is uh, his name is Tom Kaplan. So I won't forget you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Chef. Enjoy the rest of your day and have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Chef Wolfgang Puck. Find more on him at wolfgangpuck.com. To learn more about Meals on Wheels, go to mealsonwheelsamerica.org. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Kathy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetton, and Sean Petrosian. Our digital media is by Sarah McClellan Me. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Don't forget to join us next Wednesday for an episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, presented by Ford's Gin. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy, and remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.